Welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Collingswood, where we want to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs, or wherever God has placed you. Find us at libertycollingswood.org. Part of our mission is preaching sermons, so here you go. Keep in mind that these messages are designed to bring the timeless message of Jesus to bear in specific contexts to specific people, the whole eternal word, changing worlds thing. Would you hear good news here? Bon appétit. We are now addressed by the living Lord through his living word. This is Genesis chapter 14, verses 17 to 24. After his return from the defeat of Cater Laomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. Blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment to pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us here this morning into these spaces and Grant us, Lord, your Holy Spirit, that we would understand this, the very word of God. Spirit as well, whether we come here this morning full of success or full of sorrow, full of faith or full of doubt, bring us into the presence of the risen Christ, who is delighted to renew and forgive. Do a good work now, we pray, O Lord, in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. I'd like to talk for just a moment, starting out the sermon here, about Catholics and Protestants, not in an antagonistic kind of way, but there are some differences, and we just want to talk about them for a second. I am a Protestant and not a Roman Catholic because reasons, but also every once in a while I'll run into a Roman Catholic who really doesn't like Protestants or a Protestant that doesn't really like Roman Catholics, and when I encounter something like that, I just kind of go, come on, the Christian family is a big family, don't worry about it. But like I said, there are some differences, including this. You may have noticed that in Roman Catholicism, there are priests, right? And in Protestantism, there are pastors. What's up with that? Well, they are a little bit different for a couple of different reasons. One of them, there's the, the marriage thing, and I actually, so pastors can marry, priests cannot. I actually made a joke about that. In the first sermon that I ever preached. Okay, I'll tell you if, if you really want to know. So there I was, I was 19 years old, preaching my first sermon in New Orleans, Louisiana. And when I tell you what the joke was, please bear in mind that I was 19 years old. It went like this. Hey, here we are in New Orleans. There is a lot of Catholics all around. And when I Tell people, yeah, I feel God calling me into the ministry. I'll get asked the question, oh, does that mean you can't get married? And depending on the person who asks, I tell her either yes or no. 
R.I.P. Prime Jim. There we go. There are other differences as well. From my perspective, I don't think I'd want to be a priest because it's too much responsibility in this specific way. Within Roman Catholic theology, when priests make official pronouncements, what they say goes for God. Priests act as a proxy as the very mouth of God in making pronouncements. And the sacraments, for example, when a priest does the Eucharist, the Lord's table, by the words of the priest, the bread and wine are actually transformed into the body and blood of Christ. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, the Catholic Church confesses, of course, but by what the priest does. Too much responsibility for me. I prefer being a simple, humble pastor instead. But from another perspective, even though I don't think I'd want to be a priest, sometimes I find myself thinking, I wish I had one. That would kind of be nice, especially when it comes to something like confession. So have, have it, or I, I was going to ask, but I know some of you in the room have, have been to Roman Catholic confession. Others of you may not have done confession, but you've seen it in TV and movies. I never have, but I've always been intrigued by it. When you go to confession and confess your sins to the Roman Catholic priest, when that priest says back, you are forgiven, on the understanding of Catholic theology, that you are forgiven is a performative speech act. And when the priest says you are forgiven, you are forgiven. And yes, in Protestant circles where I run, we confess sins to one another. You confess sins to me sometimes, and I encourage you to seek the grace of Jesus. I confess my own sins to other people, and I'm encouraged to confess, to pursue the grace of Jesus. But it's different than a priest saying, it is done. Forgiveness is there. There's weight to it. It's tangible. You can lean into it. And I want that. And I think perhaps that speaks at a larger level. And whether you're here this morning or watching online as a committed follower of Jesus or not too sure or working out the pieces or maybe a little bit skeptical, what if we all need a priest? When life is crazy and sad, when things are really messed up, when we are messed up, when we mess up, when we wonder, will it be okay? Will everything be okay? When we wonder, am I okay? Am I all right? Wouldn't it be great to have a priest tell you authoritatively, tangibly, it'll be okay? And you're all right. You're forgiven. And our sermon passage for this morning from the book of Genesis, chapter 14. Here in this passage, we meet a figure, some of you may have heard of this biblical character, others may not have, called Melchizedek. And he actually is called in this passage, priest of God Most High at the end of verse 18. This is the first priest that we have encountered in all of the book of Genesis so far. And because Genesis is the first book in the Bible, this is the first priest in all of the Bible so far. It's an important thing. He does priestly things. 
And this theme of priesthood, this theme of having a priest, reverberates and reverberates and reverberates and moves forward and moves forward and moves forward throughout all of the Hebrew Bible, throughout all of the Old Testament, all the way to the New Testament where we encounter Jesus, the ultimate, final, high priest. And this Jesus is the priest that we need. This Jesus is the one that's graciously given and this priest is the one that changes everything for us. So two parts from here. Number one, we need a priest. And number two, why it matters. Number one, we need a priest. And number two, why it matters. So as we encounter this story here at the end of Genesis chapter 14, this is the after party. This is the, hey, had a great battle. Abraham, Eric Mitchell preached last week, rescued Lot and his family out of some really hard battle circumstances. And now, this is like, and here's a Philly reference, it's like the Philly's locker room when they're celebrating both, say, on Monday night when they clinched the wild card spot, and then again when they won last night. We have bread, we have wine coming out here in the story. That's the equivalent of chips, dips, and long necks. Everybody's celebrating. The battle has been won. And in this story, successively, Abram, our hero, encounters two kings, and it's the two different sections. One, it's the king of Salem in verses 17 to 20, and then the king of Sodom in verses 21 to 24. And this king of Salem is also called Melchizedek. And I wouldn't blame you if you haven't heard of Melchizedek before, because especially in the Old Testament, this guy does not come up a lot at all. In fact, the only two times in all of the Old Testament, all of the Hebrew scriptures, the letters Melchizedek are written are number one here. And then hundreds and hundreds of years after this, there's a callback to Melchizedek in a Psalm of David, Psalm 110, where the Lord says to my Lord, it's a messianic Psalm. The Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, the Messiah, the anointed one to come, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then later on in that Psalm, again, we read, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, speaking to the Messiah, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And we'll put a pin in that. So the Psalm of David is saying to the Messiah yet to come, you are a priest forever, not just in the mold of anybody, but specifically in the mold of this person, Melchizedek. And here's where it starts to get interesting. We don't have a lot of details. It's kind of a shadowy figure, this Melchizedek. That means the details that we do have about him are really important. And to verse 18, he was priest of God most high, and he does things that priests do. Like he pronounces a blessing on Abram. And he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram by God most high, verse 19, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And then Abram, end of verse 20, gave him a tenth, a tenth of everything as a tithe. Priests, they receive tithes. And this is what's striking to me. Haven't encountered any priests so far in the book of Genesis. The king of Salem, Melchizedek, comes here to Abram. And Abram doesn't say, you're a priest? What is that? Tell me more about that. What do priests do? I'm not familiar with such a thing. Rather, it seems that the inference goes in the other direction. Abram doesn't have questions about what priests do. Oh, it's a priest. That's great. Priests were taken for granted in this context. And as we look around the world, by and large, priests are universal. 
And here's the thing for us to ponder this morning, especially if you're skeptical towards Christianity or still thinking about it, especially around the world and throughout the ages, as you get more ancient, everybody had priests across many, many different cultures, from Incas to Aztecs, Buddhists to Shintos, Greeks and Romans, Egyptians and Babylonians, and Hebrews. Everybody had priests because there was this universal human impulse that we need somebody. We need an order of people that will mediate deity, however deity was conceived in all of these different systems. We need a priest to stand between God or the gods, however, deity, and us. We need a mediator. We need a priest that will stand in and give assurance to us from the gods, that will pronounce forgiveness, that will make sacrifices. We need priests, and priests are everywhere. Speaking of the sacrifice part, I've used this quote before. Herman Bovink was a theologian in our Reformed tradition about 100 years ago, and he remarked 100 years ago about the universality of sacrifices made in all of these different cultures connected to priests. Remarkable is a universal, profound, and powerful urge that at all times and all places drives people to offer sacrifices. That urge arises from the ineradicable sense that human beings are related in some fashion to invisible divine power, whether reconciled or unreconciled. Bobbing says there, if you look around the world in ancient cultures, lots of priests, lots of sacrifices, because we knew that we were born in relationship to the heavens, in relationship to God. And it's actually only pretty recently in the history of humanity here in the late modern West where there is more of a tendency to say, uh, all of that spirituality stuff, all of that mumbo jumbo, it's not real. We've, we've outgrown all of those religious superstitions. We know that all we can see and measure, telescope, microscope, that's the real world. There's nothing, no heaven above, no hell below. There are no gods. We don't need any of that stuff. Let's just keep going. But my question there is, is such an impulse, which again is novel in the history of the world, is that progress or is that regress? Are we so sure that it's just are we so sure that the march of history is moving away from this indwelling sense that there is a God and we are related to God or not? And I've got to tell you, I, I do get tired of march of history type arguments. I hear them every once in a while. So I'll, I'll have friends say, you know, Jim, the, the march of history is, is against what you're doing. To me, that's, that's an unprovable and bullying argument. It's basically, hey, Jim, I disagree with you. A lot of other people disagree with you. And 50 years from now, even more people are going to disagree with you. And I kind of want to say back, oh, I've always wanted to meet Biff from Back to the Future too. Wow, you have been to the future. Tell me more. And if you go back and look at March of History type arguments over the past 50 or 100 years, the success rate, the hit rate on those arguments is really, really, really low. We need a priest. We have this sense. And the Bible confirms it and says the reason that we have this sense is because we're created in the image of God. 
We're created to be in relationship with the Lord of heaven and earth. That's all true. God planted it there in us. And whether outside of the Christian story from the Old Testament to the New, priests everywhere, or the priestly lines within the Christian story itself, all of that culminates and focuses in Jesus of Nazareth, the high priest of all time, the one mediator. And this is actually why I, I feel Protestant on some of these questions. As a pastor, I minister the grace of God. Priests mediate the grace of God. From a Protestant perspective, we only need one mediator, and that's Jesus. Jesus is our go-between. There is one mediator. The Apostle Paul says there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. That's the one that we need. And this is the one that's given for us. And the one place in the New Testament, it's a lesser-known New Testament book, where the theme of Jesus' priest is developed par excellence is the book of Hebrews. People don't know who wrote it. There's different theories. The letter to the Hebrews in the New Testament, not in the Hebrew Bible. And in building the case that Jesus is our high priest, there is, at least in my opinion, made the most surprising callback to the Old Testament in all of the New Testament. What figure is pulled to build the case that Jesus is our high priest? Sidebar in the Anger household right now, we're trying to get on a family Bible reading plan where, for those that opt in, people will all be reading the same Bible passages every day. I printed out, I went to like calendar.com and printed out calendar for October and wrote on different Bible verses. We've been doing it for, for a couple of months now. Gospel of Luke. A Messiah comes on the scene. There's a ton of references to fulfillments related to the Old Testament. So you get all of the standard figures, Abraham and Eliza and on down the road. But Book of Hebrews, surprising callback, reaches back to Melchizedek. That's where the Book of Hebrew goes. And there's actually more written about Melchizedek in the Book of Hebrews in the New Testament than all of the Old Testament combined. I'll give you a couple of verses. In verse 5 of Hebrews 5, So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, quoting from one of the Psalms, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, from Psalm 110, You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. Now there's more that I could say about the book of Hebrews than is would fit in a sermon right now, but basically what's going on there in this book, I commend it to you. Spend some time in it. The author of Hebrews is making a case that Jesus is better than and the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament sacrificial system. The book of Leviticus, for example, when you have goat sacrifices and ram sacrifices and bull sacrifices and grain offerings and sin offerings, a day of atonement, all of that stuff, all of that stuff in God's plan the whole time was driving towards Jesus as the high priest who makes a sacrifice not outside of his, of his body, of himself, but in his body when he died on the cross for us. And the author of Hebrews also is at pains to say this is not something new, but this was God's plan the whole time since if the Messiah is after the order of Melchizedek, he came before all of that sacrificial stuff. Bear with me as I read a couple more verses from Hebrews. I do say, you might not get it, but go back and read it. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. That's our story here, right? 
It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Point being, as Melchizedek here in Genesis 14 is priest to Abraham, Jesus is designed to be the priest for all of us. We need a priest. It's Jesus and why it matters now in a couple of different directions. It matters for ourselves and it also matters for others as we receive the priesthood of Jesus by faith in our own lives. And as it matters to ourselves, it does so in a couple of different ways. It matters for ourselves as it relates primarily or one of the main ways to our guilt. Here's a challenging thing in our cultural moment too. The Bible teaches that we are created good but also sinful. Both things. And different cultures tilt at different times in different ways. Some are very skeptical of the fact that, oh wait, human beings are good. Have you seen how nasty the world is and we all are? That, that's actually maybe more cultures in the history of the world than where we are right now. Uh, don't, don't tell us that we're messed up at all. Don't tell us that, 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 that there's any sin. We just want to hear about how good we are. But it's both. The Bible's clear. And then also, psychologically speaking, when we feel guilt, that is a subjective manifestation of the objective guilt that we carry before a holy God. I know it's not very fun to think about, but I would say our writers sense this even outside of the Christian tradition. A couple of my favorite writers from the 20th century, Robert Stone and Philip Roth, were onto this in the 20th century. Stone, for example, writes, I can't fundamentally understand the essence of the human condition, its purpose or its lack of one. I cannot understand and cannot measure the capacity of mankind for liberating itself from its own pathology. Stone says, we have a pathology. It's sin. How do we liberate ourselves from that? Or Roth, the ever-hovering shadow of humiliation is in fact what binds one to everyone else. What unifies us? What puts us all in the same boat? It's our guilt. It's our humiliation. That's how we're connected with each other. And the question is, what do we do with that? Where do we go with our guilt? From within the Christian story, the answer is Jesus. That's why it's really good news. He died on the cross for your sins, paid the penalty for your guilt, and so that you can know final liberation, final freedom. And as you experience freedom from guilt subjectively, that's a result of what Jesus has objectively done for you. Believe in him and once and for all time be free. It's great news current cultural context says we don't want that so what we want to do is tear down every external artifice that could possibly cause guilt for people and then if we keep shedding this and shedding that especially religion then we will finally achieve a guilt-free existence so let's get rid of the vertical piece horizontally we do bad things to one another there's a lot of guilt there although i'll say at this point It's not a coincidence to me where we don't want to think about guilt before God that we hyper-pressurize all horizontal type of guilt. 
where any disagreement with another person can be seen as an attack on personhood. It doesn't have to be that way. And it's a balance thing. It's a pendulum swing. Last night, I was watching with one of my daughters for her first time the Clue movie from the 1980s. Really, really good. But, but going back and watching, if you watch an 80s comedy, you're going to have the feeling where, wow, here and there, you probably shouldn't say that anymore. That's not very nice. You shouldn't think that either. So there is that pendulum on one side, but then to the other side, every disagreement is not necessarily a microaggression and an act of war on somebody else. But we lack security, and that's what we do. But we can ask the question, if we try to strip away, strip away, strip away every reason that a person might feel guilty, is that working or not? Is it a successful program? Back again to the 20th century, the poet W.H. Auden, primarily a poet, but was writing prose at one point, sarcastically, in his case, his target was Freudian psychoanalysis, which was bigger then than it is now. But, but he was making fun of how Freudianism tries to get rid of guilt. Come, my good man, no wonder you feel guilty. You have a distorting mirror, the psychoanalyst says, and that is indeed a very wicked thing to have, but cheer up. For a trifling consideration, I shall be delighted to straighten it out for you. There, look, a perfect image. The evil of distortion is exercised. Now you have nothing to repent of any longer. Now you are one of the illumined and elect. That will be $10,000, please. Saying that, that, that the psychoanalyst in this case says, oh, you feel guilty? Just stop thinking about it. You don't like what you see in the mirror? Get rid of the mirror. And then you'll find liberation. I was reading a writer more recently talking about how when we think... Here's a test case, an example about sex. Why do we still, still feel guilty? We need to keep stripping away. She put it this way. Yet here is a conundrum facing writers today. Our enlightened, valueless stigma regarding unwed mothers, acceptance of various sexual practices, greater economic freedom for women, the availability of contraception, and the embrace of consent culture haven't translated into anything like a paradise of guilt-free fun. Now, there's a lot more to unpack there. And then I'll say, but for my purposes, this writer is saying, something's not working. We're trying to strip away all of these external expectations, thinking that this will be the way that will be free of all guilt, but it's still here. And so the question is, which is the way forward? Just strip away, strip away, strip away any and every external expectation that might possibly cause you to feel a little bit of guilt? Or Jesus? And at least in my opinion, that constant stripping away is an endless journey. But instead, Jesus of Nazareth said on the cross, it is finished. Because he paid the penalty for our sin there. So we receive security from our high priest Jesus for our guilt and also for our fears. We live in a fearful time. I'm afraid. We feel insecurity. And a couple chapters ago, actually Genesis chapter 13, I believe, we talked about how Lot was insecure and he chose bad land because it looked good and he didn't trust God's promises. We feel a lot of insecurity and life, it feels like, is getting more and more insecure as everything becomes more crazy and more sad. A couple points of lament that came to me in the past couple of weeks. At the beginning of last week, I was in suburban Atlanta at the Holiday Inn Airport North beautiful this time of year. I was receiving the church planting coaching training so that I could be certified as a church planting coach. The training was really good, but the Wednesday that we were leaving was when the hurricane was touching down in Florida. 
And so all of the church planners at this training were saying, hey, as, as we're praying for different things, let's, let's pray for the hurricane, let's, let's pray for people in trouble. And here's what I thought on the inside. I don't want to do that. Not because I don't care, but because I'm numbed out a little bit. I'm tired of praying for natural disasters and climate events that are hap as climate becomes more and more extreme, they're happening at a much rapid pace. I'm tired of praying for these things. There's going to be another one. So it was an act of spiritual discipline to say, okay, I need to pray for this one too. Or another lament, periodically in the anger household with our kids, one or another will ask, hey, what's going on with Ukraine? Isn't that a tragically heartbreaking question? When school kids, as they're doing homework or sitting around the dinner table, are saying, hey, what's going on with that war? There's so much to feel insecure about. But remember that a couple months ago, we heard from John 14, where Jesus said, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. High Priest Jesus, by his crucifixion and resurrection, gives you security. And here at Liberty Church Collingswood, we give you an invitation and an opportunity to do work with Jesus so that you might receive security and freedom. And I'll say it's not all invisible. We have the Lord's table too. And if you're a follower of Jesus, in a couple of moments, we'll invite you forward to take the Lord's Supper. And Protestants, at least in our tradition, and Catholics are united in saying something happens during the Lord's Supper, where by the power of the Holy Spirit, you are brought into real communion with the risen Christ. And as truly as you are taking bread and taking wine, you are taking in Jesus Christ, your high priest, the one that we need for ourselves, and this is where we'll wrap up, for others as well. If you receive Jesus, it's not only about what you get, there's some living, speaking, and serving as Jesus' presence here. There's some mission because it's good for other people too. Abram is secure in God. He's been blessed by Melchizedek. He knows God's promises. He's in a good place right here. In the second section, interacting with the king of Sodom, we see the king of Sodom is different. He says, give me. There's need. Verse 21, and the king of Sodom said, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But then Abram said, I'm good. I don't need to be a taker. I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a threat or anything that is yours, lest you should say I have made Abram rich. I'll take nothing but just what the young men have eaten, and then I'm going to share with the men who came with me, Aner, Eshcol, and Mamre. Abram has an open hand. Because truly, if he is blessed, and in the good graces of God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, he has enough. And isn't it the case for us that around us, there are people telling you and telling me, give me. And that's okay. And we can give to them. We can share with them. Jesus gives us enough. We can share of our time. We can share of our person. We can share of our possessions. We can share of our money. We can share in their pain. And whatever you do for the least of these in Jesus' name, you do for Jesus, our high priest. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.
day. Could that have been the best sermon ever? Eh, the odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after party, the post-Sunday blues, a preaching post-mortem, on the same podcast feed, where you can go backstage with the sermon. Live, speak, and serve at you later.